Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. This week, I want to talk about an article that I came across in Wall Street Journal. I guess it's probably been about three weeks ago. And it's called uh, The Biggest Mistakes People Make With Their Wills. So I, I made a note of this because I thought that this author makes some very good points. Um, the author's name is Miss Winokur Monk, M-U-N-K. Anyway, uh, she wrote this article, which was was ran in, in the Wall Street Journal. And it, it, it talks about the biggest mistakes that people make with their wills, which, quite frankly... Is a, is a massive issue in the U.S., but when you're younger, you tend to not think about it, and, and you figure whatever happens, it's things will end up in the right hands in the right way. I think there's that sort of wishful thinking. Um, but I think that, that the points that are raised here is a good list. Any list that you come up with is going to be a little different among people who are familiar with this area of the law, um, and there are certainly some things that I would add but not not entirely subtract from this list. So let's go over it and and tell me if you find anything we talk about here surprising. You can let us know on the website. Strong roots are essential for a healthy tree, especially your family tree. That's why you work hard to take care of your family every day. At Tucker Allen, we know that taking care of your family means planning for the future. Our team provides personalized estate planning to help you protect your family, your legacy, and your future. From wills and trusts to long-term care and estate planning. Count on Tucker Allen. Personalized estate planning made simple. The point to start with is the fact that so few people even have a will. Now, whenever we say will on here, I want you to understand that to, to mean estate planning. So every time I use the word will, for the most part, in this discussion today, I'm going to mean estate planning. Because estate planning for a Tucker Allen, for example, and for many experienced lawyers in this field, means having a trust. And we've talked about that a lot in here, so we won't spend much time with it today. But a revocable trust allows you to have lots of benefits and lots of options and to save tons of money that you couldn't otherwise with a will for the vast majority of people to whom we would to who'd be watching this today. But having said that, so whenever we talk about wills and we look at some of these statistics, we're really talking about estate planning. So according to this author, 60% of the people in the United States don't have any sort of estate planning. Now, this is this is based on information that was obtained from ARP. And ARP is pretty authoritative in this field, right? At least if you're over 65 or so. I think you can be a member of ARP at 55. Uh, Justin, do you know the answer to that? Uh, I, I think you're right. I think they lowered it recently. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, ARP is a, a wonderful thing. It won't be relevant to your life for a while, Justin. But by the way, tell me, as, as a case study example here, do you have estate planning? I do not. I, I have things written personally, but not in any official capacity. Personally. See, now this is the sort of scary thing that, that this is the reason we have this show and we have these conversations. But, that you know, you're really not a great example for this, Justin, in part because, you know, you, you are young and um, 
and just statistically, it's more of an urgent issue as you get older, though at no point should you not have estate planning, quite frankly, especially when you have kids. But but you're, you have a lot of company uh, in terms of people in America. By the way, we, uh, we also, a matter of fact, Justin found this article, a Gallup poll that was done in 20, 2020, but it was published in 21. This is interesting. Uh, 46% of the people in the United States have any sort of estate planning. Now, here's what's really surprising. Uh, of the people that that have, uh, that have earn in excess of $100,000 a year, 61% of those people have estate planning. Can you believe that? 61% of the people who earn $100,000 or more a year, which means you know they've accumulated some assets You know, by the time, certainly they're 50 or 60, uh, 61%. So it is a fair point that if you're making a list of the biggest problems associated with wills or estate planning, you got to put number one is getting it done. So let's go on down the list. Uh, Dropping large inheritances in the heirs' laps. Talked a lot about that. I'm a big, big believer in not giving a lot of money to anybody at once, irrespective of age, irrespective of how financially stable they are, mature, et cetera because you can do so much better. Uh, but we won't spend time on that topic, but I do want to be clear that that simply thinking that a will or any estate planning is simply something where you list the people that you want to give something, you state how much, and you're done after you sign. The, the reality is that you can do so much better with that to help these people. So uh, dropping large inheritances in heirs' laps, number two. Uh, the next item is forgetting digital assets, and I would add to that information. Uh, the author here is talking about the fact that there's there's crypto that's out there in lots of forms now, so we know we have digital assets, NFTs too. You have various forms of digital assets that, that many people have failed to consider in their estate planning, in part because these assets they acquired later. Some is because they're so esoteric that they assume that they're captured in some other category or a security account. Uh, the bottom line is that that you need to call specific attention to those around you, particularly a financial planner, your attorney, I would say most importantly, needs to know that that has handled your estate planning about these assets so they can make provision for them. Uh, but also a, a lot of information is floating around there online that nobody has any access to unless it comes through you, meaning you got to have passwords. You need some sort of credentials in order to access the most important accounts in your lives where there's tons of information that that you want the people, such as a personal representative, after you, you've gone, the personal representative, if we're talking about uh, a will, is the person that would handle those assets that were not in your trust. And then, of course, a trustee, to the extent you you have your trust in place and you've put some assets in it. But you want them to be able to access these accounts. And certainly this applies to information relating to deferred assets, et cetera. So for getting digital assets and digital information. So that was number three as we move along here in the Wall Street Journal list of the biggest mistakes relating to wills that people make. Uh, next item is not making regular updates. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time with this, but I think it I think it makes a lot of sense to you that that a lot can change in ten years. A lot can change in five years. Uh, the reality is that that people get married, they get divorced, people die, they discover things about their children's maturity or judgment. 
um, their their children will get older, and as a result, that in and of itself would prompt updates. Other people die, and uh, other people come into the world. So changes happen, and some can be of a financial nature. Some can be related to relationships. Whatever they are, you need to make provision for them. The good news is that if you have a good estate planning firm, and Tucker Allen, of course, is is the, the firm that, that we hold wholly endorse, but Tucker Allen is um, – uh, focuses on a relationship over time as opposed to a transaction. So a transaction perspective says that I need to go hire a lawyer to get this particular thing done. Let's just say that you're wanting to file a lawsuit or you're wanting to have a, uh, a document prepared, a contract. Those are transactional relationships. You go in for a particular thing, you hire the lawyer, the, the lawyer gets it done, you pay the lawyer, and that's that. But estate planning is different. It's a relationship. So it should be a relationship that lasts many decades and hopefully with the same firm and with additional generations. So in order for that to be true, you've really got to touch base periodically with your estate planning lawyer. And and that means the opportunity is given to them to get additional information from you, to find out new things that have happened in your life and to bring those updates to your to your documents. Usually it doesn't cost a lot. It's nothing like doing a new document. Sometimes it's so simple that there is no additional charge. I know with Tucker Allen that's true as to some changes. Uh, it just depends on, on is it, since things are in a digital form, is it something that, that simply means amending a name and keeping everything else the same? So the bottom line with this point is not making regular updates is definitely goes to the list of the biggest mistakes people make regarding their wills or their estate planning. Next item on the list. Justin, what are we down to in items here? One, two, three more. Okay, so this we're down one, two, three, four. This will be the fifth item. Mismatching beneficiaries. How does that happen? Well, your beneficiary provisions on, on assets that are considered non-probate transfer assets. These are assets that, that but they bypass probate. That's the wonderful news about things such as a beneficiary designation on your life insurance. These will bypass probate. They go directly to the person or the trust, if you've done trust planning, that you've indicated. The unfortunate thing is that sometimes people will have wills that perhaps related to updating, probably, they stated certain people to get certain assets, and then when they were in the employment office or in whatever context they're filling out these forms, opening a new account at their broker's uh, office, maybe they're doing this hurriedly, um, maybe they're sitting in a reception area somewhere filling out documents, often at a bank, people do things like that. So you could have beneficiary provisions that are entirely inconsistent with what you're doing with your will. And these need to be part of a single plan as opposed to independent, unrelated transactions. So that means that if you've made a provision for someone directly in the will that you think is generous or often a charity, uh, then sometimes people will think, well, these things are my priority, so I'm going to list the same things on the beneficiaries in the beneficiary designations. And the result, though, is that you end up heaping a lot of money on particular people and perhaps excluding others entirely. So it's best to think of this as a single plan, an overarching lifetime gifting 
strategy in which you say to yourself, these are the things that I want the people or the things or the causes that I care about in my life. These are the things that I want to take care of, and this is the way I want to do it. And then you have this range of options where you can choose among, will I do this with my life insurance? Will I do it with my uh, my 401k designation? Can I do it with my IRA designation? These are all things that that you transfer often among the largest assets that you own are transferred by way of these designations. So beneficiary designations are huge, particularly those people who took out large amounts of life insurance because they felt that they might need that when they had younger children. And maybe that that life insurance is still around when they're in their 50s or something. And, and perhaps they come to an untimely death. In those cases, often the largest asset will be the life insurance. But, but second to that would, and maybe more often than that on average, I would say the largest assets in your portfolio or in your state, the competition is between your real estate, your primary residence, and beneficiary designations. So beneficiary designations often get short shrift. They're the things that sometimes don't even come up in a lawyer's office, believe it or not, meaning you'll be doing estate planning and somehow that that misses the attention of both you and your attorney. So not only is it important that you think about them, but you think about them together. So that's the reason that you have this provision. Uh, beneficiary designation, you should also know, is something that that will bypass the will entirely. So it, it's a marvelous benefit, just to make that clear to you. Um, I think it's great that you avoid probate that way. Often what we'll do is we'll have those provisions go directly into a trust. And so then they still avoid probate, but they go into a trust, and the single plan is the trust. So as long as you have everything pointing in the direction of the trust, whether it's what's called a pour-over will, uh, meaning a provision in your will that captures any assets that you didn't think, you know, maybe you didn't remember, I want to put this in my trust. So that's okay. It's not disastrous. Instead, it, it you pick it up by essentially what's called a residuary clause, meaning you know, this is the the net at the bottom of your will that says, and everything else I own will go to blank. And the blank here is the trust of Sue and Adam Smith, for example. So the residuary clause, think of it as the net, and and very often it's going to be the bulk. It may be all the assets. In other words, you may start out in the early part of your will and say, I want, you know, this, these personality items, these physical items, furniture, whatever heirlooms it might be, I want this to go to my sister Sue. And I want um, this, you know, this collectible, not a you know, this gun collection, a gun collection, for example, to go to my brother Bill. And then you get to the residuary clause and says, and everything else I own, I want to go to my children in equal shares. So that that's a residuary clause. And and often, you know, 90% of the estate will pass by the residuary clause. But not always. Sometimes you'll you'll hand out everything in, in specific designations or bequests above that, and then the residuary clause is just oh, in the case I forgot anything else, these will go to my children in equal shares. So uh, residuary clauses are important, but if you've done your state planning with a trust, then then the residuary clause it's it's true it's the center of action, meaning you're. It's really the only thing of interest in your entire will, and and that is a simple provision that uh, anything included in my estate that that becomes a part of my estate is to go to my trust, and then it's it, it goes into that single strategy that you develop, that single place where you have everything governed 
in the way that you want. Everything is, is governed with an eye to everything else. So it's not a hodgepodge of ideas. And I think that the point that's being made here in listing this by the author of this Wall Street Journal uh, article is mismatching beneficiaries means really in a larger picture, it means failing to, to think in terms of, of a global or a, a, a strategic way. Um, next item, not allowing for flexibility. This is an interesting point, and, and that's this and for a couple other reasons, I really like this article. Flexibility means that the composition of your assets change over time. So let's assume that you go in and do your estate planning and that you have um, $5 million. And you say, you know, I want a million dollars to go to my church. So what you really mean is that you want 20% of your estate probably to go to your church. Now, it may be that you want a million dollars so that whatever changes may occur between the time that you sign that document and the time that it's probated, remember we're talking about a will here, the time that it's probated, which could be, what, a couple decades or more, you may have meant that, look, whatever that period of time is, I want $1 million to go to my church. Fine. If that's really what you mean, irrespective of inflation, you know, the fact that your purchasing power is significantly less over a period of time than it would otherwise be, then, then you did that correctly. But, but I think you get the point here is you probably really meant I want 20%, or at least you want today's purchasing power. If you did intend a million dollars specifically, irrespective of the value of your estate, you still probably meant a million dollars purchasing power as of the time you signed it. So even that, you'd want to have some adjustment. But I'm going to jump to the conclusion that you probably meant a percent. Now now let's go to the opposite issue, and that's where you, you designate a particular asset. And in that case, you think, well, I have a whole lot of money sitting in my IRA um, or a bank account at Schwab. So I have an account at Schwab, which I holds cash as well as does securities transactions. And um, I want that entire Schwab account to go to my daughter, Susan. Well, you, you see the problem here, and, and you can anticipate it, is that that amount, of course, is probably going to change over time. You may forget about the fact that you made that very, very important designation to Susan, and that that may be the only designation you made. But because you know, your memories fade, years go by, decades go by. Yeah, all you know is I provided for Susan. So I don't need to go back to my lawyer. I don't need to do an update. I provided for that daughter or that loved one. In reality, that money could have maybe the securities in the account tanked. Uh, maybe you just closed the account and moved it somewhere. And you didn't think that, you know, it didn't occur to you about the implications of the will. It's understandable that you might not think of that. So whenever you give particular assets, particularly financial assets as opposed to heirlooms, we're talking about assets of substantial value, you have to, you have to revisit that if that was intended to be of significant value. Or maybe instead, instead it's the opposite. It wasn't intended to be significant value. Imagine, you know, how how the pendulum can swing the other way where at the time you gifted it, it was to your third cousin at this Schwab account, and the Schwab account had five thousand dollars in it. And you thought, I'm gonna give five thousand dollars to my third cousin who has been a nice person and have a close relationship. 
Well, over time, you know, you're not thinking about that designation, but you're moving money around. Life goes on. You sell a house. You think, where do I put this money? Oh, Schwab now is paying a better rate of interest. So you put the $300,000 in the Schwab account. Well, you know what, what's happening here. So it turns out that your third cousin is convinced that you really, really like them. So at, at least um, at least there, there are people who benefit from, from these, these errors or matters of inattention. But the bottom line is they're not what you want. What you want is, is requires your periodically looking back that you're, you must revisit periodically. And, and the, the flexibility that's required for particular things require that you circle back more often. There's probably a better way to do this so that you know, while, while you're still going to circle back, you don't want to be so vulnerable to being whipsawed based on values and allocations. So that first example where you wanted to give a million dollars to your church, what you're really thinking is that my church is very important to me. I want to give 20%. I'm guessing that's what you wanted. If not, you can you see the point. So instead, use a percentage and then say at least. So if that is a priority, and even if your assets drop to 3,000, you may still feel that I want a million dollars to go to my church. So you could that could be worded uh, 20% or $1 million, whichever is more or whichever is less. So, um, you know, you have to think about what your what the language is you're using because things do change over time. And I thought this was a really good item to raise here was the lack of flexibility in the wording of some trusts. So think about when you're naming amounts or accounts or other particular assets, is there a better way to say it? And I can assure you, and with respect to this topic, there are. There are lots of alternatives, and a good lawyer will be able to tell you what those are. Finally, as we wrap up here, Justin, how much time do we have? Uh, about 15 minutes. Okay. So um, we'll have a little shorter show today. Um, not heading off conflicts. We've talked about this in various contexts. We've talked about it as it pertains to trust. Um, you know, letting people understand in advance what can be expected, how important that is. We've talked to it in terms of having a challenge, which you can have a challenge to a trust. It's less common than a challenge to a will. And probate, you know, it's just a cliche that often people fight over money in probate. But often that happens because things occurred that were unexpected and the people on the losing end of those changes are convinced that something wasn't right. They believe that somehow uh, their their deceased mother would not have done that, that and that somehow she was deceived. There was somebody with undue influence. There was fraud, perhaps. Uh, somebody was misled. So these are the things that trigger conflict in, in a lot of probate cases. So in addition to which this author of this article, uh, Winokur Monk, uh, she suggests, and I think it's a marvelous suggestion, that that one of the best ways you can have to head this off is to let everybody know in advance. That means all those categories of people who felt that that somehow you didn't really mean to do that, to the extent that you sit down and talk about it, at least they're convinced that you really meant to do it. Now, that's sometimes an unpleasant conversation. Uh, it requires perhaps an impossible level of diplomacy for people to walk away feeling good about it, meaning 
there are some people that might have some resentment in the family, and maybe maybe that's the the reason that many people simply don't do it. They just don't have those conversations. They can't bring themselves to to have to deal with the fallout from that conversation. So they figure, well, you know, let somebody else deal with it. And unfortunately, that's a very expensive approach because it means lawyers are making a lot of money in that litigation and, and others, and it's just not the right way to have family harmony apart from the money involved. Uh, but I would say in addition to that is if there's going to be an allocation that is conspicuously controversial, meaning you can anticipate that this decision to give everything to this young woman, if you're a male that you've met recently, or you're female now, I guess the way the laws work. So this person who is probably regarded with suspicion by the rest of the family, I use that that stereotypical example where it's somebody younger and often the rest of the family thinks this person is simply a gold digger or whatever. But whenever you have anything where you're giving something that would be an unnatural disposition, uh, it's not the sort of bequest that the courts would expect historically or families would expect historically. So that's that's going to invite challenges. So when you know that's coming down the road, you can choose to be very meticulous in assuring that things are done properly. Sometimes it makes sense to videotape, to videotape the execution of the document. In that circumstance, then you'll have the attorney present, um, the uh, estate planner, the, called a testator, the person making the will. Um, they're present, and the lawyer will ask them a series of questions to make sure that they're clear and this is what they want to do. And the lawyers will even ask them why. Why is it that you want to do this? Now, this doesn't this isn't the solution in all cases where you expect conflict because sometimes if if you have a testator, the person making the will, your soon-to-be-deceased you know, uh, ancestor, then that person may not be very clear-headed. So if the person has problems that, that might suggest they're not fully competent or that they're vulnerable or they've been misled or they make a misstatement of fact, there's a problem, for example, if, if they in answer to the question, why are you choosing to do this? They say, well, because of my son, Billy, he's, he's failed to be, to be attentive to me. He pursued something that I thought was wrong and I, I knew it was a bad decision and he wouldn't listen to me. So I've decided that I'm not, I'm going to reduce the amount that he receives. Well, what if it were to turn out that those facts are not correct in their particulars? It just opens a door to suggest that, ah, there's a mistake here. There's a misunderstanding. There's somebody who planted that incorrect piece of information. So whenever you're giving reasons, they should be given carefully because they can potentially blow the other way in terms of their their influence. Uh, but for the most part, I like the idea that that if we foresee a storm on the horizon – related to this planning, that we do things to plan for that storm. And and we one option is the videotape. doesn't have to be done that way. Instead, you could say, okay, we're not going to do videotape because it probably wouldn't look as good as we think uh, if we just dot our I's and cross our T's. So we just very carefully set up all the estate planning appointments. That person, for example, who we who is likely to be accused of having engineered uh, this change in distribution, 
that person is not to participate in any of the meetings. It's better they not even come to the law office. If you inherit them at the initial meeting, that can still be headed off. By a lawyer who's on their toes, they can see on the front end of that meeting that that this could be something that would cause a problem later on. So that that lawyer should and could say, maybe we ought to, ought to just meet with you, uh, Mr. Smith, and your friend, well, let's not have her participate in the meeting at all. So that's the sort of things that, believe it or not, are what the testimony, the examination, the cross-examination at trial is going to relate to. Much of it will relate to who drove the person to the office, who made the appointment. In other words, uh, you see language in, in the case law where they've ruled that that there was undue influence. You'll see language like the person had a uh, procuring influence, meaning they kind of procured the meeting. They set it up. Uh, they made the phone call. They made the appointment. They drove. Um, heaven forbid they were in the meeting speaking. Now, you have attorney-client confidentiality regarding a communication from from your loved one to the attorney, the, the decedent, we'll call it, the person who's passed away. Um to the attorney is protected. But if you have someone in the meeting who's not essential to that meeting, that's not protected. It means that none of the conversation is protected, including the words between the attorney and his or her client is not protected. So when when you do anticipate, even before your attorney tells you, if you're watching this if podcast regularly, you should know that if you're doing estate planning, some of the things that are going to be huge red flags and going to invite conflict, you can initiate saying, well, I don't want you to take me to this meeting if we're talking about somebody that you're going to be very generous with. You can head that off. You can call and make the appointment yourself. At a minimum, you don't want this person sitting in the meeting. So uh, if your lawyer doesn't catch it, which he or she should, you know now that there are steps you can take that will hugely decrease the probability of any successful challenge to your estate planning. So those things can be anticipated, but you need to anticipate them in advance. But but I, I do appreciate the point that the author is making in this Wall Street Journal article when what Ms. Monk is saying is, you know, uh, a failure to head off conflicts is one of the, the mistakes that she's listed, the last item here. But what she's talking about specifically is failing to inform, to, to sit down and talk to people and to the family and tell them what you're doing. I don't disagree with that. I think that that probably is the one of the most effective ways for sure that you can head off that sort of conflict. Um, so if I added anything to this list, I would add the fact that, uh, remember, uh, trusts are, for the vast majority of you, are going to be far more beneficial to you than simply doing a will. Uh, but I'm interpreting this to be not about wills, but about estate planning. So anyway, I hope this was helpful to you. This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.